Welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picture House podcast proudly supported by Kia. I'm your host, Flick Beckett. This is our February edition of the show, covering some of the best new films coming to your local Picture House cinema this month. As always, I won't be doing this alone. We are joined by two brilliant guest film critics who will guide us through the movies. And we've got a couple of special guests along the way too. Our guest critics this month are Michael Leader and Pamela Hutchinson, two of the very best film journalists working today. And we're thrilled to have them on the show this month. As well as Pamela and Michael, we'll be joined by special guests Brendan Fraser and Samuel D. Hunter to talk about their new film, The Whale, and director Joel Crawford to discuss his new film, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. But the first film on our show this month is Alice Diop's Saint-Omer in cinemas now. So over to Pamela and Michael. C'était l'heure des hautes marées. La lune se dresse devant moi. Mon projecteur comme un appel de phare. Alors j'allais sur la plage. Madame Colli, savez-vous pourquoi Vous avez tué votre fille. Je ne le sais pas. J'espère que ce procès pourra me l'apprendre. Oh, Pamela, always a pleasure to speak with you about films. First of all, let's talk about Saint-Omer. This is a film that comes with quite a bit of considerable hype behind it. Prize winner at Venice, ranked highly on end-of-year lists for 2022. How do we start with this film? Where do we start? with the pleasure of talking about film with you, Michael. This is a very special film. I I too saw it last year and put it on my end of year lists. It's uh, directed by Alice Diop, who has previously been working in documentary. So it has a very sort of texture of the real, this film that is based on a real life court case from 2016. We're essentially watching a courtroom drama and it's a very harrowing subject. The, the, the defendant in the doc has, is accused of having left her baby on the beach to die. So it's a very, very difficult subject. We're watching the courtroom and the trial along with another character who's a literature professor who has started the film with giving a lecture talking about actually referencing a wonderful film from 1960, Hiroshima Mon talking about how words and art can turn fiction, harrowing events into something much more sympathetic to show human beings in a state of grace. So we'll be looking at this young mother throughout the trial and trying to work out how we could ever understand what's happening. Mm. That term, courtroom drama, whenever I hear it, maybe I'm, maybe I'm revealing my age here, but I see Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. I see big speeches. I hear you know, the, the very much revealing mysteries and solving cases. That really isn't what this film's about, is it? There's something quite complex and challenging going on that I've thought, that I found, where as you say, it's much more observational. Alice Diop talks about the, direc- the director, Frederick Wiseman, the documentary filmmaker, who's a documentary filmmaker who has almost no point of view or perspective apart from the cameras on what's going on in institutions that he shadows. And that's sort of similar here, but it does develop a, a quite an incredible power of its own, even when you're just watching a court case before your very eyes. Yeah, it feels very much like it's a real court case. And we know that the dialogue for the film was taken from the transcript. But there's something here that's a real real piece of art. We're seeing this through a particular viewpoint, which is that both the defendant and the woman who's watching the trial, they are both women who who have difficult relationships with their own mothers. And also, 
the woman watching is pregnant, which is sort of revealed quite early on. And so she's thinking about how she's going to cope as a young mother. And there's something here about not really understanding these big mysterious changes that go on in our lives and the, understanding the other people who are in our lives, like your mother. How can you ever really know what it was like for her growing up? How are you going to respond to this life change? We don't really get any answers from this film, but we do get a sense of sort of understanding these people as much as we ever could. And it feels quite profound by the end of the film. I don't know how you felt. I, yeah, I find it very profound, particularly using the courtroom as a crucible for this, for, for exploring the great unknowability, not just of each other, but also society, because there are these amazing moments. It's done in a very sort of stripped back way in terms of the aesthetic of the filmmaking. Lots of very long takes, very still camera, locked off shots all the way through. Yet even within that, there are some very powerful moments where we realise that one character's talking, who's watching, who's listening, who are we empathising with or perhaps not. You have all these different people with different points of view. You have, of course, the defendant, you have the jury, you have then the actual officials, the court officials, and then the protagonist, the writer in the audience. I found this really fascinating because in some ways it's incredibly profound, very intellectually challenging formally, but then also very moving as well. It's a very rich and textured film. Which part moved you most? Was it the, a heart film, a head film? <laughs> well, you know, um, as someone who sort of loves classic cinema, I saw the film with the beginning, with the reference back to Hiroshima and more, and you start thinking about the history of female writing and female filmmaking, but really it's a very simple story about a woman in a situation that very few of us can ever comprehend. And she's a very moving figure in the doc. Uh, Gulaji Malanda is the name of the woman who plays her. And the sort of really important thing to point out, of course, is that she's a, a young woman from Senegal who's living in France at the time, and also our literature professor character. She's also a young black woman living in France. And so they, ha they have different relationships to their own privilege and lack of privilege and class, their access to education. So we have a film that becomes about intimate relationships, but also about the sort of wider society. And I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before, so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. So that's Santa Mare in cinemas right now. Also in cinemas right now is Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, featuring an Academy Award-nominated lead performance from Brendan Fraser. After Michael and Pamela's review, our very own Sam Clements recently spoke to Brendan Fraser and the film's writer, Samuel D. Hunter, when they were both in London earlier in the month. I know these rules can feel constraining, but remember, the point of this course is to learn how to write clearly and persuasively. Think about that. Think about the truth of your argument. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Everybody's talking about The Whale at the moment. Brendan Fraser's comeback film, Much Love Actor. Darren Aronofsky has directed this, and it's an adaptation of a really popular play. Now, people are already talking about Oscars for these films when they first appeared on the circuit. So 
now we're deep into awards season. What is your take on the whale? Well, I found it very interesting, Pamela, that you introduced this as Brendan Fraser's comeback before you even mentioned the director, Darren Aronofsky. And that's sort of, we've been here before with Darren Aronofsky, with The Wrestler and Mickey Rourke. He seems to do these films every now and then that are precision tools to give their actors moments in the in the limelight. And with The Whale, it has been very fascinating. It premiered towards the back end of last year at festivals, and it's now gone on this long journey. And Brendan Fraser, at every turn, has borne his soul, his, his heart, out in, uh, in interviews. And this is very much a film that hinges on that central performance. As you say, it's adapted from a play. It's very much an enclosed, single-set story about this reclusive English teacher who is severely obese and he reconnects with his long-lost daughter that he's been separated from since he divorced her mother years ago but then we find out various aspects of this man's life his history maybe see what has caused him to go down this route to be so isolated in his final days because that's the opening scene is very much he cannot live very long with this sort of condition And Brendan Fraser is very much at the heart of it. And it's so fascinating to see how this has developed because in the process of watching this film and your emotional engagement with the character, you are also emotionally engaging with Brendan Fraser, a character who has had this horrible experience of the Hollywood machine and is now having his moment in the limelight in the way that this sort of character is having their moment in the limelight. It's very hard within the, the, the pressure cooker of award season to unpick it and not just see it as the performance that is being nominated and potentially will win an Oscar. Were you able to unpick it in that way, Pamela? I mean, I entered the film with so much love for Brendan Fraser. I think he's a well-loved figure, even if we didn't know all the terrible things that happened to him. Mm. And it's a very raw performance. There's, there's no skin over this performance at all. He really is a character who wears his heart on his sleeve. It's a difficult film in some ways because it's a theatre adaptation. So you you go in expecting this closed-in environment which actually is completely appropriate for this character. He is effectively a hermit, forced to be a hermit through his sort of uh, grief and through his sort of physical condition. So it does what lots of stage adaptations do, is it has these big reveals, big reveals about the backstory. So it really just sort of, you think this is a very sad story when you start watching the film and it gets sort of sadder and, and more brutal. There are obviously quite a few big reveals as well around Brendan Fraser's physicality, or rather the, the physicality of the fat suit. You know, we know that Darren Aronofsky has this sort of fascination with the body and the body mm-hmm. sort of malfunctioning and being damaged, you know, in The Wrestler, as you mentioned, but I'd also mentioned Black Swan in particular, uh, you know, and the the performance of Brendan Fraser and the physical presence of uh, Brendan Fraser in his prosthetics are almost two separate things in this film. It's a quite difficult thing to watch at times. I think it's the sort of... Uh, charm doesn't seem quite the right word but the sympathetic quality that Brendan Fraser has that allows you to stay in the room with this dark story unfolding I think. Yes it really is that that, that sympathetic quality that Brendan Fraser has that I think is playing in concert with Darren Anofsky's quite extreme tendencies. I wasn't I was surprised to go and watch this film and then feel that we were back in the room of um Requiem for the Requiem for a Dream, which was his second film and very notorious in the sense that he he went went quite far into this extreme drug addled melodrama, particularly Ellen Burstyn's character, the mother in that in that film, and he's pushing for this sort of ecstatic melodrama, isn't he, in these sorts of films, and 
it's a, it is a slight your mileage may vary type of tone because in some ways it is pushing quite hard in some ways it's quite grotesque and in, in its misery but then you do have if you do connect with Brendan Fraser's performance and we are all coming of people of a certain age film fans with a baggage towards him and his his roles and our memories of him there is something quite special with what he's doing on stage, at least. And I say on stage, on camera. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there was a point in this film where I thought, can I really continue watching? You know, because there was something was about to happen, which I thought just it would be too heartbreaking. But there's part of me that knew that I was going to keep watching. And it is Brendan Fraser that carries you through this film. And something about, he plays a character who's quite infantile in some way, infantilized, And this essential sweetness that he has in the middle of what you might call the sort of Darren Aronofsky milieu of darkness, and as you say, extremity. And that that is a really strange experience while you're watching this film. I don't know how you felt. It was quite strange. But again, this is one where Darren Aronofsky's films are ones that I come back to because somehow they, they just stick around. Once the Oscar hullabaloo dies down, it's always worth revisiting them. But I think for now, it's definitely one to see just because if you want to be in that conversation of best actor, Brendan Fraser seems to be ahead of the pack for The Whale. Um, welcome to the Picture House podcast. Uh, Samuel D. Hunter, Brendan Fraser, great to have you on the show. Thank uh, you. Welcome to London as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we should say at the time of recording, the BAFTA nominations have just been announced about half an hour ago. <laughs> both. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in the presence of BAFTA nominees. Congratulations both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you're it's in... good timing. <laughs> I know. Imagine if I did. We did this interview an hour earlier. <laughs> uh, we're in the middle of you know the awards season, and, and there's lots of you know news sort of breaking. And, and the whale is one of those films that is very much in in contention. What, what's it like being in the middle of this? You know, uh, you're at the eye of the storm, as, as it were. Uh, I'm learning as we go along. To tell you the truth, I, I, prognosticating on this stuff is not in my wheelhouse. I'm just I'm just happy to be invited. Right. I, I mean, for me, I'm a theater kid. And so like, this is all very new for me. And it just all feels like this incredible gift. I, I never, um, out of all of the things that I thought my life would sort of lead to the paths that I th was hoping to go down, this is not one of them that I could ever dream of. So it's, it's been incredible. And it's been incredible doing it with, with Brendan. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Sam too. Another Sam. It does seem like a nice company of people to be in, though. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always like Darren and Hong and Brendan and Sam. You know, everyone, it, it feels like a little sort of family. I don't know if that's me projecting or if that's sort of what the vibe is like as part of this. Family. No, you're right. Well, we got to know one another pretty well, considering yeah. the film we made and what went into creating it and how close we had to become under the circumstances we were working under at that time, given that it was 2021. And uh, yeah. <laughs> pre-vaccine. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Or I guess just as. Just yeah, as it was yeah. rolling out, yeah. yeah. Well, we worked to get the safety protocols in place, which is great. We could get back to work, the unions and all that. But that feeling of we might not be able to do this again or what will happen tomorrow, that existential threat that we all lived under, it wasn't lost on the production. I don't think in terms of how much we wanted and cared and gave it even more whether wittingly or unwittingly, it's all there. If we weren't running out of moves, then we weren't doing our job, it would seem. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, so I'm from a cinema company, and films like The Whale are you know, what we want uh, to be playing. And I've been lucky enough to see the film on a big screen with an audience. You know, we're sort of in that period where you know, some films sort of go to streaming, some are going to cinemas. Was, is, is cinema that something important for, for both of you? Are, are you sort of big fans of the, the movie experience going to a, a, a theatre? Absolutely. 
I was raised seeing plays in London, which opened my eyes to the world of acting. And one of the first films that had a huge impression on me was Star Wars. And it was in Leicester Square. And (laughs) it was 1977, I believe, at Christmas. I was here. That was a a big impression on this, what, eight, nine-year-old kid. So yes is the answer. (laughs) Love the movies. Yeah, and I I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm so used to making plays and inviting people into the room. And and, uh, I mean, it's the thing that I love most about making plays is it's immediate. It's in front of an audience. And uh, and so it's been so gratifying, like, seeing this movie in packed houses. Yeah. Now all across the world. And it does get a response from the audience. You must have seen that, you know, uh, sort of multiple screening. You know, I've been with people who are, you know, sobbing towards the end, people who just want to have a talk. Like, it's a nice, like, conversation starter, as it were. Like, our audiences are hanging around yeah. in the cinema mm. after seeing the film. It's kind of a great equalizer. You know, it's a, more than just a conversation piece. It kind of puts everyone on equal footing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've hug- hugged a lot of strangers over yeah. the last few months, which has <laughs> been really, really wonderful. It's been kind of my favorite part, actually. Not every film sort of warrants that response or gets that response. I think it's really nice when there's a visual response to the audience. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Okay, I can see this film has touched you, it's affected you, you've enjoyed it. That's wonderful. Samuel, this is adapted from your own play. I think 2012, uh, your sort of play came out, and we're talking now in, in 2023. It's just, just for our listeners, could you sort of set up the sort of journey from stage to screen. What happened in those intervening years? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it was in New York in 2012, but it actually originated in Denver at the Denver Center uh, for the Performing Arts. And uh, it was one of my first plays in New York, and maybe it was my th- third or fourth. And just having my play at, like, an off-Broadway house with 125 seats, I mean, that felt like I had scaled Mount Everest. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, I did it. This is all that I've ever wanted to be was an off-Broadway playwright. And so when I got a call from Darren saying, let's talk about this as a movie. I, you know, I had zero expectations in that arena, uh, which was good, I think, because I came at it just in sort of like, okay, how can we tell this story on film with integrity? Uh, And I think one of the early things we realized is this is not a play, unlike maybe some of my other plays that would want to be opened up in a film in that traditional way of like adding characters and locations and flashbacks. It's really like the experience of the stories being with this human being and so it took us a really long time to to figure out what the cinematic language was for that and then i think the the greatest challenge even after we had many drafts of the script was who was charlie and darren rented a theater in the east village in february of 2020 2020 and right before the pandemic hit and we did a reading of the screenplay as one would do a reading of a play with brendan and sadie too she um, was there. Amazing, wow. Yeah, and from five minutes in, it was just like, oh my God, we found him. Like, it, it was a revelation. <laughs> and uh, how, how was it from your side, Brendan? When did uh, you know the story come into your uh, orbit, and, and how did you end up at that, that table reading? <clears throat> Earlier that year, in January 2020, I heard that Darren was going to make a movie, and he wanted to meet me, so the answer is yes, I would like to take that meeting very <laughs> much. I didn't know a lot about it. I knew a man has been living alone. He has some regrets been overeating and it's harming him um, and he wants to reconnect with his daughter oh and he also has about five days if that go uh, that's a movie there that a lot to work with oh and one more thing his body on paper weighs around 600 pounds to put a number on it and how will that be accomplished how will you achieve that so that was the conversation with Darren through use of prosthetic makeup he didn't know if he was going to make the movie at that time, that's why he had the reading afterward. You know, I was 
I was auditioning. I mean, you know, call it what it is. He, he assured me that uh, his collaborator, Adrian Moreau, who's fantastic, also just nominated for a BAFTA, ding, ding, mm-hmm. was going to do Charlie's Body. I kind of digress for a second. Adrian Moreau is another film that's come out stateside. I don't think it's here. It's called Megan. Oh, yeah. Right. That's his creation also. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. He's good. <laughs> Give you an idea of what he's capable of. And so we were in good hands. And it was very specific as a costume and makeup was achieved by, because I couldn't do a traditional process of lying in a chair and having goop poured on your face, make a mold from that, compounding, all that. A scan with an iPad. The producer came to my house. We stood in the cold in my driveway. My dog screwed up the shot a couple of times, (laughs) standing at my ankles. You know, anyway, that information went to... Adrian, he built a 3D model of Charlie, virtually. From there, he had been experimenting with printing appliances to make molds from. And uh, they, they figured out a way to do it so that it was absolutely seamless, like literally seamless. If you were to see where the lines started and stopped, per se, the movie wouldn't, there'd be no movie. It, it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't. Because then we'd be in the domain of sort of the jokey... Mm-hmm. costuming that we've seen when, when uh, actors are called on to play weight gain and this is not that movie this this had to have a resounding response and obedience of the laws of gravity and physics when um, Charlie stands up it's a Herculean effort for him it was cumbersome that I and, and appropriately and, and helpfully so for me to feel the same way to verify how immobile Charlie is how much of an effort and what an accomplishment, how Herculean it is for him just to take to his feet, which is important. Come see the film. You'll learn why. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that was discussed early on with, with Darren. And um, I didn't know if I had the job because, like Sam said, we had, we, you know, we shut down in March of 2020. Everybody, we all went home. And I was working on No Sudden Move with Steven Soderbergh and company, and I got a text message right around... The U.S. election. I was looking for a ballot drop box at the time, so I was in a panic. But I kind of like put it out of mind. I was thinking about things. I was like, "It was Darren." Oh, and he's sending me like a documentary, a link to a documentary. Do you want me to look at some something to read, a couple of articles, and then something about speaking with the uh, Obesity Action Coalition? And and I, I'm on board. But I thought, "Am I hired?" Like, what? I, I didn't know. And I even asked him. He's like, "Like." Yes, <laughs> correct. Now Proper get, Darren. Get to work. Yeah, that's that's typical Darren. Start the conversation right in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Keep you on your toes. Yeah. So. yeah. What's it like for you, Sam? Seeing you know you're very familiar with this. You know, you've written the play, written the, the you know version for the screen, but actually walking onto that set and and, you know, and and seeing what's been created and, and sort of actually being immersed in this in this world. Yeah, I mean, it was overwhelming. I mean, I I think that you know it's been it was we had been talking about it for so long. And there had been so many different versions of the script and, and different versions. Of the, I mean, the last time that Darren called me and said, can I please option the play one more time? I remember just being like, man, dude, like, <laughs> do something with me. <laughs> just like, are we really going to do this again? Like, okay, fine. But he made good on it. But I think I didn't allow myself. I mean, I remember even when I was like booking my Airbnb in Newburgh, New York, where we shot it, I was like, is this refundable? (laughs) God knows. But so it really wasn't until like I walked on day one of that rehearsal and I, and I remember it 
so well because I opened the door and there was Darren with like a viewfinder <laughs> and Brendan and I was like, oh, it's real. It's actually happening, you know? And, and from then it was just like, I, I mean, then it was just work. I mean, I, yeah. I think we're all just working so hard. It was exciting, but then it was like, wait a minute, stop patting yourself on the back. We got some shit to do here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, I mean, it was two and a half months, including uh, rehearsal. Yeah. You know, we it, had, it was a long time. It was, it was 30 what days? 32 or something like that. Shooting days. Oh, shooting, yeah, yeah. Chronologic, too. Oh, wow, yeah. Which is good, yeah. considering he's got such little time and yeah. his health is deteriorating. So that meant that Charlie's body, the makeup, also had to depreciate Monday to Friday. And and to have had to jump around forwards and backwards would have thrown a real monkey wrench in the engine for makeup. <laughs> one morning of Monday and then one morning of Tuesday or on the same shooting day. Mm -hmm. So there was a careful battle plan that was laid out more than I would know, but most much of which I just saw just from that rehearsal that we had to get in, to get in, to get in the right head frame. Just the, when you were sort of adapting the play in, into the film, you know, what were the biggest changes from your side? Things that were really important to, to change for, for cinema. I mean, I think, you know, this was probably 12, 13, 14 plays ago for me now. And so, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in the interim and, and I think, uh, you know, I've also become a dad in the interim. That's a pretty big change, uh, especially as it pertains to the story. And so I think I just got to deepen and broaden it in ways that I think I might even like lead me to do a rewrite of the play. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of it was sort of how can we tell the story visually? You know, I added that second bedroom in Charlie's apartment. Of course, that doesn't exist in the play, but that really is sort of like the architecture of his history with his lover, Alan. And that really replaced, uh, you know, a big monologue in the play that Charlie delivers to Thomas about uh, his dead lover. So there was a lot of things like like that. But then also just new ways of looking at this story and this character that 10 years of experience and thought could bring, you know, that I could bring to it. I guess not every one gets to go back to something 10 years later and no. you know, refocus. Well, and the crazy thing too is I'm in rehearsals right now in New York City for a play called A Bright New Boise, which I wrote right after The Whale and they're kind of companion pieces. So like I'm oh, wow. kind of excavating my late 20s, early 30s right now. It's really interesting. <laughs> we all go start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good work deserves to be celebrated and I'm really glad that The Whale is being celebrated and thank you so much thank for you. your time today. <laughs> thank you Appreciate so much. It. Thanks, Sam. A big thank you to Brendan Fraser and Samuel D. Hunter for their time there and a great review, Pamela and Michael. Our next film is Best Picture nominee Women Talking from director Sarah Polly in cinemas from February 10th. Why does love, the absence of love, the end of love, the need for love result in so much violence? It was all waiting to happen before it happened. You could look back and follow the breadcrumbs along the path that led to violence. When we looked back, it had been everywhere. So Pamela, I have a confession to make. Towards the back end of last year, two films were on sort of festival circuits and were being reviewed and tweeted about with very similar names. She said, and Women Talking, of course, she said came out November last year, and this is Women Talking. Which one is this one? Could you bring me up to speed? This is the star-studded film about Me Too, so you're fine. 
Exactly. Uh, this is um, only sort of elliptically about me too. This is about a very specific case. This is by the Canadian actor and filmmaker Sarah Polly, and it's based on a novel from 2018, which itself was based on a real life uh, event. And the novel's by Miriam Turves, and it's about a series of rapes and abuse that took place within a Mennonite colony. So the men were abusing the women in that case, and the women had to decide what to do about it. So it's based on a novel, and I have to reiterate that it's not based on a play, but what we have is a similar kind of uh, thing to the first two films we talked about with a courtroom kind of drama and a kind of play set up in that we have the conversation. A group of the women from the colony have gathered in the hayloft to decide whether they stay and fight or whether they leave. And of course, if they leave, according to their religion, they're not going to go to heaven. So this is a very difficult conversation. And Sarah Polly gives them some beautiful words for this conversation. Yeah, the Sarah Polly aspect of it is what I'm really intrigued by. I've not seen the film yet, but I have seen the two feature films she made away from her and Take This Waltz, Stories We Tell, the documentary she made. But she hasn't made a film as a director in a long while. But in the process, she's become quite a strong writer uh, in some of the writing that she's released over the last few years. And so how does Sarah Polly come across in a film like this in 2022, 2023? I mean, this is my favourite of her films that I have seen. And I've, I've seen all her other films. Uh, it's a fantastic film. I mean, I think it has it has a sort of, sort of weighty sort of reputation because it seems like such a dark subject. And she makes the film dark. Similarly to Darren Aronofsky in The Whale, she desaturates the image. It's very dark. We don't see beautiful women in floral dresses in a cornfield in the way that you'd expect them to look. This is a dark film. And so we have this sort of grainy, murky image. And yet the things they say are spoken with the eloquence of women who have not been asked to speak for most of their life, who haven't been asked to think. And so you have these forceful speeches that come out. And when I tell you that we have Rooney Mara and Claire Foy, Claire Foy, absolutely on fire. I've never seen her like this. And Jessie Buckley, we have a sort of a, a Scarface cameo from Frances McDormand, which I think should sell any film to anybody. And this wonderful interplay between these women with... Uh, insightful things that they say which seem to be about so much more than the situation at hand and even a little bit of humour I have to say. Um, there's some young people watching who are find the whole thing quite boring. There's a repeated references to a pair of horses called Ruth and Cheryl who will, who will keep you through the dark times in this <laughs> film. Um, and we do even have a man. We have a token male in the film with that, which is Ben Wishaw who is the sort of one male ally they have in the colony and he's there to take the minutes because of course they can't read or write these women. Mm. And I think Ben Wishaw is one of the few that has been you know, nominated for awards in this awards season. And there's a terrible thing about awards season where something can be labelled or given the stink of being a failed Oscar play, not that this would ever be termed that, but it's a busy time for us film viewers if we want to catch up with things that have been nominated. What's this doing differently or what, what maybe what we wouldn't expect to make us turn up and watch it? Well, according to the Oscars, this is a film that's good enough to be nominated for Best Picture, but not for Best Director. So mm -hmm. for one thing, it's a marvel that this film made itself all, all, all by its own son. But I think that what we have here is Sarah Polly showing what she can do cinematically when she's constricted herself to the A-loft, is whenever she leaves, she shows us through some really beautiful editing and cinematography um, how much she can open out a story about people who are kept indoors, who are kept inside a colony. And it does leave you shaking, I have to say, this film. I think it's very profound. I think its use of language is incredibly beautiful and complex, and it will leave you thinking about 
everything else that could possibly be considered to be an analogue to their situation. So it makes you think about Me Too and Hollywood, it makes you think about sexism, it makes you think about generations of low expectations for certain people, it makes you think about religion and whether religion can ever be a solace, it makes you think about the idea of forgiveness and whether there's such a thing as secular forgiveness and I really highly recommend it. If you want to see Claire Foy ready to fight to take up clubs and beat every single man to death within a square, square mile radius, then this is the film for you. Oh, I'll welcome it. I love being made to think. <laughs> <laughs> because I like to force you to think, Michael. <laughs> I say it does have this very distinct look and it has very distinct choices in the the cinematography, the editing particularly, things that I do think could come across as cloying in other situations because there's a certain sort of weight to this film and seriousness, it it takes you to a sort of another level of filmmaking that I really, really enjoyed. That's Women Talking in cinemas from 10th of February and we also have an interview that I did with the great Sarah Polly which will be on this feed on the same date so make sure you subscribe to hear that down the line. Now we've got Broker, the new film from Hirokazu Koraeda in cinemas from the 24th of February. So we've had a lot of uh, films about families and parents and children and so this is a very direct film on that subject. It's called Broker and it's about baby brokers. Can you explain a little bit more, Michael? Yes. Okay, there's a lot of overlapping sort of jigsaw pieces here. So this is a film by the director Hirokazu Koreda, who in his career he has looked at the family unit in Japanese society. He's a Japanese filmmaker. He made the films Shoplifters that won the Palme d'Or a few years ago, Like Father, Like Son, which won the Jury Prize at Cannes a few years before that, as well as Still Walking, which is an incredible movie. This is his film, his first film in Korean and in Korea. And as you say, baby boxes at the heart of the plot baby brokers for baby boxes there's so many different babies involved here but baby boxes is a is a thing that is in japan that he read about in the news but he found out that it was more prevalent in korea and these are almost like drive-by drop-off <laughs> shoots for unwanted babies i would say maybe a hatch not a shoot because shoot is for laundry michael and i'm slightly worried what you think is going to happen to these children i've just got this more sort of cartoonish look of the sort of the the, the journey a baby would go on down a shoot no this is where churches would have places where um unwanted children can be dropped off to be then left in the care of the church and they believe that Koreda uh, read about this and there was one in Japan but he found out there were three or four in Korea so he squirreled it away for many years until he had the chance to turn it into a feature. That's just the start, the starting rip from the headlines sort of conceit of the film about these baby boxes but then there is a broker involved who is a man who's played by Song Kang Ho who we may know from Parasite although he's one of Korea's biggest film stars. He sort of runs a side hustle where he is a child trafficker in a way he will he takes the babies from this baby box service and then goes to sell them to families around the country and then bolted on top of that there's the story of them going on a road journey a car journey across korea with the actual mother of the baby who's having second thoughts along for the ride and then the cops are on their tail and this is very much a film about family 
and the unconventional family units. If you'd seen Shoplifters, you know that that was a family created by consequence and sort of on the poverty line in the margins of Japanese society. This is a similar deal here, although perhaps with a bit more of a heartwarming humanist kind of themes at the heart of it, because I think Koreda very strongly believes in the common decency of people when they form these units. Yeah, I, I thought about shoplifters quite a lot when I was watching this film, which, as you say, is very heartwarming and does have this unconventional um, family, unconventional use of lots of genre trappings, really. So we have the cops and the two lady cops who are obsessed with food, basically, and uh, sort of grumpily trying to work out how they can intervene in this case. I thought that it was quite a funny film. And it's interesting, if you think about the seriousness of the situation, they have this beautiful baby at the heart of the narrative, and yet we keep complaining about how the baby doesn't look cute enough, that it has the wrong kind of eyebrows, which, you know, always put me back on the back foot every time I was thinking about the seriousness of the situation. The young woman who leaves the baby, not at the baby box quite, it's very crucial exactly where she leaves the baby. She's played by a K-pop star, I understand, and she has this very sort of um, slow burn performance that I really enjoyed as it becomes clearer and clearer incrementally exactly what kind of person she is. Because as soon as a young girl leaves a baby out, people make a lot, in this film, they make a lot of assumptions about who she is and what her intentions are. And it's a lot more complex. And one of the things that I really enjoyed was sort of seeing this strand of narrative, which is almost separate to everything else in the film, unfurl alongside this almost kind of this pair of buddy comedies that we had with the two child brokers and the two, I can't, I shouldn't call them lady cops, should I? I think they're called cops, aren't they, these days? <laughs> yes, um, exactly. <laughs> but there's something about these two sort of like gender matched pairs that are sort of racing each other to get to the end. You know, one of the things about, you know, police work is that both sets of uh, both sets of pairs want this baby transaction to take place because one people one set wants to sell the child and make their money and the other set want to catch them in the act so you do have this very sort of neat train tracks here and then yeah the uh, mother herself wandering in and out and complicating everything mm. I think the real pleasure of this film, and it's the reason why Koreeda went to Korea, is because he wanted to work, he's a fan of Korean cinema, he wanted to work in that industry, one of the strongest film industries in the world, but also in terms of their star system. Some of the great actors in the world are working or in, in Korea or are from Korea. So Song Kang-ho is ab absolutely great and perfect for this sort of film because he is somebody who he has this sort of hangdog way to the world and his shoulders expression but you're never really sure whether he is a kind old man or a wrongan and he's played both equally throughout his career so he's always on the edge there and then on the cop side the lady cops as you call them pamela um yes, I do. you have you have bay duna who is a breakout star from korea uh, but also had worked with koreda in japan and she is brilliant she, she, she's almost sometimes in a slight as you say it's these sort of parallel tracks to the movie the cop uh, pursuit drama there she's she's also somebody who just has this weight to her um to her performance that is so magnetic i love going back to those scenes as well but i suppose i'm in the bag for this film as some would say because i he is one of my favorite filmmakers and i'm very much into korean cinema um what's your relationship with that pamela and how did you come out at the other end i have not seen as many koreada films as you have done maybe seen three or four um but i I was actually wary of this film because I thought, do I really want to watch a heartwarming comedy about child trafficking? 
turns out the power of cinema is that it can uh, confuse you every time because I did find this film incredibly rewarding, incredibly charming, and well, just yeah, the sight of Song Kang Ho with a baby in his arms somehow does does quite a lot to a person. Don't miss Broker. It's truly a special film and one that looks gorgeous on the big screen. Just before we end this month, we've got one more interview with director Joel Crawford discussing his new film, the Oscar-nominated Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, a really special animated movie that's in cinemas right now. I am known by many names. The Stabby Tabby, El Macho Gato, The Little Whisperer. I am Puss in Boots. Holy frijoles. You, lunch me. And the rest of you, play double time. Uh, hello, Joel. Welcome to the Picture House podcast. Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. This is awesome, Sam. We're uh, we're in this like really great time uh, in, in cinema in the UK. There's so many films coming out. A lot of them are, you know, very serious, you know, uh, Oscar contenders, heavy dramas. And, and I think, you know, uh, the film opens on the 3rd of February in the UK. And I think something like Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, sort of really punches above the you know the competition Aww. and really stands out and i think it's kind of what people need right now thank you for saying that we set out to tell puss and the last wish knowing people might be expecting a sequel to a spin-off <laughs> even if you love the shrek world you love puss and boots and it's it's been over 10 years since you've seen them last there's an expectation that you bring back the comedy and the adventure but we wanted to go further than that and really expand on not just the look of what a fairy tale story could be, but also the emotion, the tone that goes deeper, but also feels joyful and light. And so that was a, a very ambitious uh, goal that we set out from the very beginning. But it, it's cool. I think back to what you're saying about how some movies that are nominated can be kind of more heavy meditations <laughs> and then you have the audience wanting i think joyful experiences and and the response from everybody has been appreciating that the film does both i was just wondering i guess sort of going back to the sort of beginning of the film what what did the script look like and and, and how how long did it take to sort of get uh, into the state we see today because i think you spin a lot of plates in this film <laughs> <laughs> it definitely took a lot of trial and error reworking script, reworking an editorial, reworking scenes with actors and, and having conversations with our amazing cast. That's the beauty of, of animation. These things do take a lot of time. What I kind of feel is like this, this approach of improv. I studied improv uh, when I was in animation school. I went to like the Groundlings just over the summer to do to take an improv class. And I fell in love with not just the art of it, but also the feeling you have when you're doing it, which is fear, <laughs> which is like what there, there's, you start with nothing. Uh, you're standing on stage and you're trying to go, where is this going to go? And there's this magic that happens where you, you find that connection with the other actor. And it's a, the classic yes and, but the idea keeps getting built and built and really kind of evolves into something that you never could have expected. And for us, when we set out, we knew what the movie was about. We knew this movie was about all these different characters who were going to be chasing after this wishing star, thinking it's the one thing that would make them happy. We knew it was going to be about Puss in Boots finding fear and vulnerability. We didn't know how we were going to get there. 
And I think that's what the, what I love about making animated movies. You have a, a crew of over 400 people and every step of it, you have to just keep making sure it stays about the same thing, but it surprises you because you have all these people, humans who are bringing their own experience to the craft. And so that's, I, I love the, the chaos of making these movies. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're surrounded by lots of like-minded people there full of ideas, which must be quite fun because the film is the film's really expressive. You've gone for this really it's a different art style to what we've seen before with Puss in Boots. And it's kind of a quite a fresh animation style. It sort of made me sit up in my chair a couple of minutes in. I was like, what's going on? This is different. And and I I was just sort of like staring at the screen, thinking like how beautiful this looks. I don't know how you describe it, I guess, for the listeners. It's kind of like a 3D, but like painted kind of look. <laughs> yeah. The production designer, Nate Rag, kind of describes it as like two ways of like being immersed in a fairy tale painting or classic fairy tale illustration. And I think for us, it was important to find the right balance where it does make you sit up in your chair and go, whoa, this is really exciting, but also not be distracting or too stylized to where it doesn't feel too flat or, or graphic. And that was like a little journey in finding that perfect balance, which uh, really we just, our team went back and forth with actually using some of the resources that uh, some of the discoveries that the, uh, DreamWorks earlier film this year, The Bad Guys, which also pushed the style. It's not exactly the same as Puss in Boots, but um, it's amazing to have all these talented people at the studio who are kind of innovating and pushing. And we, collaborate and one of the fun things is not only the the look being kind of this this painting and that being unique but also being able to embrace a different style of animation than the traditional cg especially what had been in the previous puss in boots movie and in the shrek world which for us we wanted to make sure okay we're doing some really cool stuff but we don't do it just because it's cool <laughs> um, that we had a, a story philosophy behind every choice and the important thing was, well, we know why the movie looks like a fairy tale because we're being immersed into the fairy tale. And also from Puss's point of view, he's kind of living in a fairy tale. I'm going to live forever. I feel no stakes, <laughs> which, you know, as he's fighting a giant, the opening, and then to use the story to kind of bring you on the journey with Puss. And uh, I'll give you an example where when it comes to the animation, we use traditional, say, CG, which is 24 frames a second, everything, you know, each image is held for one frame and it's nice and smooth and it feels grounded like what we're used to looking at in reality. Um, then you have stepped animation, which kind of goes back to the traditional hand-drawn animation, both in Disney, but then even anime has really found the, the voice of this, which in action scenes, when you hold an image for not one frame, but four frames, your eye sees it longer and you, you get these kind of fantastical superhero feelings when you're watching an action scene. And so our concept was, let's use this expanded animation styles to tell the story of Puss in Boots, that he goes from this fantastical point of view. Every action scene feels like you're following a superhero and it feels exciting and fun. But then when you go to the, and we'd use the stepped animation for that. But when we'd go to moments where like Puss is feeling anxiety and um, is feeling fear and, or even connections with other characters, this trust, 
that you're using very grounded kind of moments that feel real. And so in that way, you're experiencing the whole movie as an audience, whether you know the different animation styles that are being used or not, you're aware of the feeling changing up between them. Absolutely. I, I think it's, um, I really love animations that use the medium in, 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 you know, new ways, but also in such expressive ways. And it feels like, you know, like the, the, the backgrounds are telling, you know, uh, people how to feel and what's going on in the story. There's, there's lots of detail throughout the frame. And, and it's not just like we're following the character, you know, the whole movie is expressing uh, to us the audience, or at least that's, you know, what I was taking from it. And it's, it just makes for a more immersive experience. You know, I was, I was fully there, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, actually, I mean, I think there's something to being able to tell a story that isn't chasing after a literal translation of ideas, but, but an impressionistic. Um, and, I'll, and I'll say like that goes from the being able to have the, everything set in this painting, but also when Puss in Boots gets cut, a little spoiler alert, but he may get cut by somebody. <laughs> we kind of used inspiration from the Sergio Leone stylized backgrounds that would be like a, a flat card of red. And we use that to feel fear, to feel vulnerability that puts this feeling for the first time. So it's impressionistic. And I think being able to like show and how have the audience feel those things more than be literal really allows you to connect to a broad audience that the older, there's, there's no one that this movie is, is uh, not for. <laughs> no matter how old you are, you're going to feel fear. And no matter how young you are, you're going to feel fear, but it's not too much. And I think that's to the being kind of impressionistic. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it, it, there is something, it's very like cine literate to watch. And and uh, I've been recommending it to all of my friends, you know, my age, you know, mid 30s, just like, guys, <laughs> when Puss in Boots <laughs> opens, you, you're going to need to go and check it out. And, um, and then, you know, like, you know, and I, I think that they are as big a film fans as I am, that they would also get a kick out of it in, in the same way I did. Um, so, yeah, so it really is. It's one of those, like, you know, films for all ages, but literally it is for all ages. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, I mean, th that's the thing. I'm like, I'm looking at this and going, I want this movie to be meaningful for me. I want the humor in this to be accessible for, for adults and being able to have like, really have the experience of hearing how this movie's really been here in, in the United States. A lot of the, the audience has been not only the family audience, but teenagers and 20 year olds, 30 year olds going to the movie over and over. <laughs> and, and I think, one of the reasons that I think it's resonating, um, going back to something you were saying earlier of like the detail put in to the story, we really put a lot of love into every frame of this and work to really layer the, the storytelling. There's a lot of foreshadowing built into it. There's a lot of fun little details, like people have mentioned seeing the wolf in the crowd as Puss is fighting the giant, even you know a few minutes before he's actually introduced in the movie. There's things we are planning that we hope people would be watching this over and over and discovering it because it, because it was hopefully such a great journey. And it's been really gratifying to hear people go, yeah, I've seen it three, four times because each time I, I noticed something new. 
Wow, that's, I mean, that's, that must be so rewarding to hear as a, as a filmmaker. And, and, you know, it's open in the US, as you say, we're, we're getting it soon. But it's also, you know, it's in the, uh, been nominated for a BAFTA, been nominated for an Oscar, you know, like, how do you feel right now? We're talking to you, I guess, sort of you know, mid quote unquote award season. Um, and you're kind of in the thick of it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's, honestly, it's amazing. It's, uh, I never could have hoped for such a great reception from audiences and critics. And I think that's what's been just wonderful to see how, you know, in these nominations that we're getting and, and BAFTA, that, that's so exciting. We're looking forward to coming out there <laughs> with the Oscar nom as well. It's like, it, it just, I think it really validates for the entire crew that kind of put blood, sweat and tears into this, that this journey was worth it. That everybody figuring out ways to push the story to bring their craft to the highest level like is really being celebrated and and that's just wonderful you know yeah i guess that that nomination is is you know it's for the whole crew for those 400 people you mentioned you know that's uh it makes that me you know, like making the film must make it all worthwhile but then that extra sort of endorsement uh, must really make it all worthwhile <laughs> oh I, absolutely and 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 i i when i say the crew i can't leave out the cast as well because Every step of this, every layer of this has been an open dialogue, whether it's with artists or our amazing cast. You know, from the very beginning, like Antonio Banderas, when we were, you know, walking him through what the story would be, he got so excited to be able to not just tell another, you know, adventure of Pusses, but like to show the world another side of Puss in Boots, a more vulnerable side especially because that character started out as a kind of sidekick in Shrek 2. He stole the show and he was so fun. He's comedic and heroic, but there's kind of this, that's one layer of him. And Antonio was, was so there with us of like, let's show what's behind the mask in a way. And then I'd extend that to, to Selma Hayek Penalt, who immediately was so involved in conversations. I love working with her where she would go, like she would challenge things and go, I think she would say it this way, and we'd find things together. And then all of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, like each member of that cast, like Florence Pugh, when we pitched the story to her, she really connected to her, her experience as a teenager. And that as a teenager, sometimes you don't appreciate your family because <laughs> there's this angst and this, you're, you're finding out who you are. But then that, you know, as you get a little bit older and maybe move out of the house and you look back at your family, you realize, wow, that's my family. And everybody in our cast were such partners. And I knew I'd get an amazing performance from there's such amazing actors. What I didn't know was how, how passionate and connected they'd be in our conversations. And really a cool theme that rose out of everybody bringing, going above and beyond was as each character, as we kind of looked at them individually, the cast keep coming back to like, this is about someone who's chasing after this, this one thing that there's going to make them happy. I need magic to fix my life. And we found this theme of appreciation and gratitude through the conversations with each of the actors. And that's something I just really value that it's not just showing up to, to record the lines, but that they're thinking on every level about this character and, and their worldview. And they, I think the distinction to make this movie is animated, but it's not a cartoon. The characters are so deep and real, and you can feel that in their in their journeys. And 
that's, that's a big a big credit to the cast and our our writer Paul Fisher. Absolutely, the, the the cast is stacked. You mentioned Florence View, but also Raymond Stone, Olivia Cot. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful cast uh, there. Well, um, oh, yeah. thank you uh, so much for talking to us today, Joel. Um, I think we need to wrap up there, but uh, say so really enjoyed the film. I'm going to be taking all my friends to go and watch it at Picture House yes. this weekend. Um, and uh, fingers crossed for the awards. Fingers crossed for the BAFTAs. Fingers oh. crossed for the Oscars. If you're in London and you have time, there is the Shrek experience on the <gasps> South Bank next to the London Eye as well. An immersive oh. 4D uh, amusement uh, attraction, which. I can recommend it's a good time. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that. No, I'm we're going. <laughs> oh, oh, awesome. Thanks so much, man. Um, I'll see you soon. <laughs> Thank you. Whilst we were talking to Pamela and Michael, we also asked them what's currently out in cinemas that they'd recommend and what films they are looking forward to in 2023. So those are the films that are out this month, but is there anything still in cinemas that you'd recommend listeners to this podcast go and check out? Well, I think we had a couple of films in the, the conversation we've just had that are worthy of multiple viewings. And one film that I'm hoping to go back to the cinema see again is Todd Field's Tar, because that is one that is two and a half hours long. It has so much going on in terms of aesthetically, intellectually, thematically, the performance of Kate Blanchett, the music, everything. And also having seen it and then also read a lot of the various takes, read a lot of the interviews going into the craft behind the film, it makes me want to go back again. Um, I, I think that yeah, as we said, awards season and Oscars make you try to binge on as much as possible. But it's that's one that I think I can't wait to see again. I, me too. I can't wait to see that again. Yeah, because, do you, do you? because it's a rewatch film. Absolutely. Do you have one you want to recommend in cinemas, Pamela? Well, almost if you've seen Tar and you've seen that, you know, arts can be monstrous, I think you've got to watch All the Beauty in the Bloodshed, which is a documentary, our first for this podcast, by Laura Poitras. And it's about the artist Nan Golden and it's about her life which has been difficult it's about her art that's been fantastic and intertwined with the history of feminist cinema but also it's about her activism and how her art and her activism are so linked and you know art in this story can perhaps make the world a better place so it's much uh, much more uplifting than some of the other things that we've been recommending today but let's cast our gaze even further afield is there anything you're really excited about in the coming months well, I'm a retro girl, so I've got a couple of things I'm excited about. One is uh, there's a season at the BFI South Bank of Ginger Rogers films, which is pretty much what I would normally be doing in April anyway, but I'll go along to that. But I've been reading reviews out of Sundance about a new rom-com set in South London called Rye Lane, and I love a hyperlocal film, and I love... I love to be hopeful about the rom-com genre, so I'm really excited to see this by a filmmaker called Rain Allen Miller, and apparently it is delightful, so I will be first in the line for that one. How about you? So I have two, and they're both, they both feature stop-motion animation. Uh, one is out middle of February, so it's at quite close range, and that's Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which was released in the States last year, finally coming out here after it's had an Oscar nomination. And it's just a deceptive film. You think it's going to be a delightful little romp about a tiny shell with a googly eye and little trainers voiced by Jenny Slate um, and its little adventures around this home as captured by a director who was actually played by the director of the film, Dean Fleischer Camp. But it, it develops into something much more moving and deep as it goes on, both about social media, but also about family and about and and how you're remembered and everything like that. 
At further range, later in spring, there is a film that's coming out that I just want to put on people's radars because it is playing in picture house cinemas, I hear, which is called Junkhead. It's a film by a director called Takahide Hori, which was a sort of word-of-mouth smash hit in Japan. After playing only one screen, it went out to dozens of screens. And that's a sort of sci-fi, future shock, bizarre, black comedy horror film uh, that was almost entirely made by one man in his garage um, and was called a sort of a work of manic genius by Guillermo del Toro. Check out Junkhead. I will do. <laughs> so, Michael, it's been great chatting to you. If anyone's listening to this podcast, where can they find what you're up to elsewhere? Well, I'm Michael J. Leader on most things. That's what I am on Twitter. And my website is michaeljleader.com. I am currently touring a couple of books that I've written with my co-author Jake Cunningham about Japanese animation. One's called Ghibli Attack, which is about the films of Studio Ghibli. And the other one is the Anime Movie Guide, which is about 30 films from the history of Japanese animated cinema. We're doing screenings at various cinemas up and down the country, but if you search for us, we'll you'll see where we're rocking up to next. Uh, but that's keeping me busy for now. Uh, Pamela, where can people find you? Well, uh, like you, Michael, I'm a freelancer, so I'm here, there and everywhere. I'm Pam Hutch on Twitter because nobody has time for my whole name, I feel. Um, I have a monthly column in Sound and Sound magazine where I sort of talk about new releases through the sort of prism of older films because older films are, are my passion, it seems. And I do have to say, I do have a book coming out later this year. It's a BFI film classic, short and sweet, on a wonderful film, uh, Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes. So I have been mostly thinking about ballet for the last six months of my life, and it's been fantastic. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest critics, Pamela Hutchinson and Michael Leader. It's been great to have you on the show and would highly recommend following them on social media and finding more of their work. Thank you to Keir for supporting the show today and to Kobe at Stripped Media for producing the show. Thank you also to Carrie Morrison for editing the show and making us all sound so professional. As always, please do subscribe to the show if you don't already. And if you can leave us a five-star rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that really helps others to discover the podcast. Hope you enjoy whatever you decide to watch at the cinema this month. And please do let us know what you're viewing by messaging us at Picturehouses on all of the main social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. Thank you, everyone. I've been your host, Flick Beckett, and we'll be back next month with two new guest film critics and another set of excellent films. <laughs>